Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I really got to stop doing that. Uh, I'm Spectre with me is Z. As always, the spot the volume challenge that we had up on the uh, pre-stream and also that we're sending out on Twitter now will be covered on tomorrow's binary episode. Um, and we'll also tweet out the solution there as well. All right. So let's get into our topics for this week. So first we have a Instagram 2FA disable from Geek Freak. Um, perhaps a bit less technical than a lot of the other Instagram issues we've covered previously, since this one ultimately resolves down to a brute force, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but first, another important thing before getting into that is understanding that with Instagram, you can sign up using a phone number, which kind of makes sense. Instagram is intended to be used on phones. Um, and when attempting to sign up with a phone number that's already used on another account for 2FA, for whatever reason, once that number gets authenticated, it will disable the 2FA on the original user's account without their knowledge or consent. Um, so that's important here because that's what this attack leverages. So it's um, without their null, or sorry, it's without their consent, but it is with their, because they do send an email indicating that the 2FA was removed. Um, so, I mean, I agree. It's now, it's without consent, but it isn't necessarily without knowledge because they're at least informed that such a thing happened. Uh, one Who reads thing... email anyway? No. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's valid. That's that's fair to call out. Um, and I that think said, it what makes. I, meant... I think it makes a little bit of sense here that they do that because occasionally people lose, like you know, they change phone numbers, anything like that. You no longer have access to it. If a new account is being created, somebody new has verified in theory that they own that phone number. It does, to some extent, make sense that only one account is going to have ownership of a phone number at a time. I mean, that's that sounds like a case that should be handled through support, like the support system, though. If somebody like gets a new phone number and they forget to disable the 2FA, like I feel like that should be going through a ticket system. Should you be, be trying to do this in an automated fashion? But should you be blocking the old users? Um, or sorry, the new user, somebody who just I got a new phone, got a new phone number. Hey, let's check out this Instagram thing. You know, um, I, I feel like it's a sane choice. I mean, you can make some other choices, such as requiring them go to support to have the phone number removed. Um, that does also mean that you can't have an easy check for like only one user has this phone number associated with their account. Like you suddenly have a any a phone number can be associated with many accounts, which can in turn, create other vulnerabilities, um, you know, down the line, just having that sort of architecture versus just one account owns a phone number and that one-to-one -one mapping. Uh, like, yeah, I, I think there's arguments tricky, both ways. It's a bit of a tricky situation, for sure, um, because it's so easy for somebody to just get a new phone and forget about what could be attached to their phone number, like 2FA. Um, and it, it kind of varies service to service how that's handled. So, yeah, I mean, I don't really, I don't agree that it's the best solution with what Instagram rolled with. But yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that that is a, a reasonable solution, I guess. Um, that just seemed a bit weird to me. The other thing I did want to comment on was uh, when I said without the user's knowledge, I was thinking more on like it wouldn't alert them directly through the application. But I mean, yeah, they say in the in the blog post that goes through email and yeah i mean i'll be honest i don't know how many like instagram users or like people like that are going to be checking their email very much but 
Yeah. Does it I, indicate I guess without the knowledge that, is not a super accurate statement. Does it indicate that there are no other notifications? I could imagine like email just kind of being part of Instagram's notification stack. Now I don't use Instagram, so I'm not actually sure um if they kind of just treat notifications as a blob and then you can set up your priorities on where things go. So, you know, some user might actually get a push notification with something like this, depending on the configurations. Or, like, do they indicate otherwise? Given the fact that they explicitly only call out the email, it makes me think that there's nothing that's more obvious. Which um, is fair, but they might also, like, not actively be logged into it either or something, just not looking for it. Yeah, that could be true as well. But uh, anyway, like, yeah, the main thing here is the fact that if somebody registers an account using a phone number that already has 2FA, the account that had 2FA will have that disabled. Now, obviously, in order to do that, you would need to be able to recover and enter the one-time password to confirm the phone number for the new account, um, and which is where the brute force comes in. So Instagram does try to prevent brute force via like typical rate limiting on the IP. But by just rotating your IP and sending the request with different IPs, you can bypass that rate limit. And where the one-time password is just six digits, the entropy isn't super large. So as far as brute forces go, it's not unrealistic for that to be a viable path. So yeah, I mean, kind of, kind of two issues there. The main thing that got patched by Facebook was the, they changed the rate limiting from being IP-based to uh, based on the phone number. So, you know, that that's a good change. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, as far as I know, like they still do the the thing where it'll take remove the 2FA if somebody registers and verifies with a, the same phone number. So because that's I'd, just a design choice. Yeah, now I'd kind of be. So first off, I, I did find it interesting that they were able to use this in that way. Like that is kind of abusing what would obviously be intended. Uh, to get rid of that 2FA. That is also kind of a minimal primitive to have. Um, re removing the 2FA, like, it's still something, but you'd still need, like, the victim's password to actually take advantage of that somehow, uh, to log in as them, and then you just wouldn't need to do the phone 2FA, but any other 2FA that's set up would still come through. So, like, it's worth calling out. Instagram gave them, I believe, a $5,000 bounty for this one. Um, I think there's somewhere here. Yeah, $5,000 yeah, bounty. Yeah, the bottom of the timeline. So, I mean, they gave that, which is more than fair for the issue. It would be difficult to really take advantage of it, but like you were saying, if the notification is... You know, that's definitely... You know, you could use that and then take some more time to take advantage. Like, it can be a subtle issue that people don't notice has even happened in the first place. Yeah, the, the impact is a little bit low in the way that you have to chain it with other attacks for it to really make any sense uh, to do it. But yeah, I mean, it's still a, a fair uh, attack to point out. I mean, the entire idea of 2FA is... Um, securing the account against takeover. So being able to disable that is a fairly big thing, even if on its own, it, it might not, um, you know. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it, it has an impact. It, it's definitely there. I'm not arguing otherwise. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, it's a downside of how they decide to structure that with one account owning or one phone number being owned by one account, thus leading to that removal, which is an interesting scenario. The IP rotation is kind of a classic thing. Uh, you do rate limiting on it uh, on the IP basis. I would maybe wonder now, since I, I would assume otherwise. So the fact that they don't mention this as available during like the login process as a way that you could bypass the 2FA by brute forcing it is an interesting thing to be missing if it did have an impact there. So it does seem like this is at least separate from like the normal login 2FA. Um, I mean, I do find that a little bit interesting that they would separate the code in that way. Versus yeah, just using really like the same that. 2FA. Or same to FA code. Um, since it's different, I would wonder if the new rate limiting impact might might have an like if you could lock a user out by triggering the rate limiting on the phone number. Um, if you could impact the login to FA versus the um, account creation to like FA, yeah. But since they're separate, probably not. But that is kind of the challenge when it comes to rate limiting. Um, if you do it by IP, you can get around that with brute forcing. If you do it by account, then you kind of face the risk of having that denial of service uh, just by an attacker trying to brute force the account and denying the legitimate user access. That'd be a good thing to test. Yeah. Yep, that's a fair call out. All right, but... uh. Yeah, we'll move on to our next topic here, which is uh, Slack. Uh, this is a cross-site leak in Slack's file sharing functionality. This is from uh, Julian Credel, I think is how you say it. Uh, I might have said that wrong. If so, apologies. But um, yeah, this can allow attackers abusing the bug to de-anonymize other workspace members um, using malicious sites. So this was found kind of through variant analysis after the author read the leaky images paper from Usenext 2019 which I, I can't remember if we covered that. I am I meant to go back and look to see if we had covered that before. But we did not cover it. Um, okay. we've, you know, we've talked about cross-site leaks, but we did not cover... We didn't cover the paper. Leaky. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea around that was that images or resources um, on a service could be used as an oracle, um, especially if they were behind authentication, to probe whether or not a visitor of a page was logged in as a certain user, um, just using the fact of if they had access or not to ascertain, you know, if they're a certain user. Yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of the critical functionality here is that difference in behavior, whereas a logged in user, well, or sorry, uh, any user that isn't authenticated to view that specific file will be redirected away versus actually being shown whatever the file is or having a download triggered in this case for the file. So something like Discord, where you upload something, as long as you have that URL, everyone can access it. There's no leak there, but Slack has some authentication on those attachments. Therefore, you've got a difference in behavior, which then leads to the further leak. Yeah. So speaking of that difference in behavior, there's... There's three different behaviors that can be exhibited uh, with the private shared uh, Slack links. So if you're logged in and authorized to view it, it'll download the file and work normally. If you're logged in, but you're not authorized for that link, 
the browser will go into this redirect loop where it'll keep trying to download the resource until the browser eventually tells it to cut it out and stop. Um, or if you're not logged in, they'll they'll just get redirected to the file uh, without being looped. I thought that was a little bit weird that the the behavior was different between being logged in and not authenticated versus not being logged in at all. But I, I don't really know how Slack has it set up, so it's, it's kind of hard to comment there, but I did find that a little bit strange. But yeah, so due to that difference in behavior, like he was saying, you kind of have that oracle of whether or not someone is logged in. Uh, now, Slack does use a same site cookie that must be included in, in cross-site requests, uh, making it so the shared resource has to be accessed through top-level navigation and it can't just be accessed through JavaScript. Um, but the way they got around that was by using a window location update and using a timeout to give the browser enough time to redirect away if the user isn't the target. So just kind of doing like a timing based thing where, you know, if they if the timer expires and they're still on the malicious page, then they know that the user is uh, is logged in. So to clarify on that one a little bit, this one relies on the fact that when you access that file, it's going to try and download it. If it were displaying it, you would actually get redirected away. Um, so that difference really matters here. Uh, because you've got the case where if you're not authenticated, you're going to eventually end up just on an air page. Either that's going to be the browser's air page because of the too many redirects, or you're just going to another page. So updating window location will navigate you away. But because it's downloading the file, so that's like your content disposition header with attachments stated. Um, because of that, because it just triggers the download, most browsers are like, well, this is just a download. We don't need to change the page. Therefore, the timer that was created will still, or that was created on the original page, even though the request was made, uh, it won't actually change pages. So that difference is really the key here also for this particular attack on it. Um, there are other ways you might have been able to abuse it, such as the... I know there are some attacks where it comes to, like, redirect counts. I'm not sure that would apply here, because I think you usually need to need to get them towards your page for that, but I have a couple thoughts regardless. Uh, XSLeak.dev, I think, is the site that basically lists everything, or a lot of the known research, at least when it comes to cross-site leak attacks. Yeah. So the window.location update uh, works for a single target, but the author did want to come up some, with some other strategies to say if they could do it at more of a mass uh, scale for doing mass de-anonymization, de um, which that strategy wasn't well suited for due to the browser redirect. Um, you're kind of robbed of doing any additional uh, testing on that page if the user is redirected. Um, so to use this at a larger scale, um, you'd want to be able to cancel the top-level navigation, um, as they say there. So luckily for them, HTML form get requests technically count as a top-level navigation, so it'll carry that same site cookie um, or any same site cookies. Beyond that, Chromium-based browsers explicitly allow form submissions through form actions. So on Chromium-based browsers, you can set up multiple trackers using forms without getting redirected on that main so page. So that, that's, sorry, the way you phrase that might be a little bit confusing. So... Chrome and, like, you can do form actions as a get request, Chrome, Firefox, like, that's a standard browser feature for quite a while. Um, what they took advantage of here is the form action directive of the content security policy. 
Yeah. In that. So that's what um Chrome. So if you're not familiar, form action is basically setting up a whitelist for this web page is allowed to make form requests to these locations, setting up what the form action are limited to. Um so Chrome will respect that. So even if it gets redirected away from that page, it'll look through all the redirects and make sure the form action is still an approved location. Whereas Firefox only requires that the actual form action, the original URL that's being sent to, is approved in that whitelist. Um, so in that case, you could take advantage of Chrome's behavior in following it through the redirects. Or enforcing it through the redirects would be a better way to put it. Um, it's not just the um, the fact that the for or that it supports get based forms. No, no. So I said that it's because they explicitly allow them through the CSP. I didn't say through the CSP. I probably should have there. Um, that, that's that's probably what led to a bit of the confusion there. So, but yeah, the problem is the Chromium based browsers allow them through the CSP, whereas they said like Firefox and Safari and some of the other browsers they tested. Uh, it it wouldn't go through. So yeah, well, it supports it's kind of it also. In how this um, can be. I actually wonder if Chrome might be in violation here a little bit. Um, I, I don't know what the spec is or how that format should be enforced, but it makes sense that Firefox and Safari don't follow redirects because the form action is just that first request. That is the one that the page has set. Um. They don't necessarily, like, if they're submitting it cross-site or something, they don't necessarily control where that other site's going to redirect to. So it kind of makes sense. Like, the only one you're really concerned about is where's my page sending them to. So I'm not sure, like, if enforcing it through the redirect is the expected behavior or not. But I do think, like, it makes sense, or it makes more sense to me how Firefox is doing it versus how Chrome is doing it. But... I can see an argument through Chrome also. With Chrome, you just need to include more entries to accommodate any potential redirect. It's a little bit weird uh, how the browsers behave differently on this on this topic, yeah. But um, yeah, so that technique works, but it doesn't work too well at scale um, since it has like an O O N complexity on the number of users you want to track due to having to use a lot of resources. Um, he then goes into detail on a more optimized technique, which involves abusing group DMs to limit the number of resources needed um, and using bit vectors. I won't go too much into that here because it's mostly just optimizing the existing technique that we already talked about. Uh, they reported this issue to Slack through the HackerOne bounty program. Slack chose not to accept the report or pay out on the basis that this is a team member versus team member attack, which is considered a trusted action. Um, and users in a Slack space are trusted more than, say, a random Twitter user or something. Um, it, it also has limitations that limit the impact, which the author is very open about for, for what it's worth, um, such as, uh, you know, the limited app impact of browsers for the form submission technique, um, only allowing Chromium-based browsers to work. It also doesn't work on, like, the desktop client or mobile applications. It's also somewhat unreliable due to being a timing-based attack. So there could be some instances where if the page takes a while to load, they could uh, incorrectly like think that a user isn't the target. Um, and it also doesn't scale super well unless you use the group DM technique, which is pretty noisy. 
That said, the author still disagrees with Slack being dismissive of the report. Um, and that's just disagreement on the idea that Slack space always consists of trusted members, arguing things like cross-business Slack workspaces and such could make such an attack like a viable attack scenario. Um, and there is like a low barrier to entry to abuse the issue. So yeah, there's a bit of a disagreement between the researcher and Slack on this one. I'm a little curious on what your thoughts are, Z. Like if, if you would support Slack and their dismissive dismissal of the report. I mean, cross-site leaks are a weird area. It's one, it's a fairly new attack surface. Um, like really, I want to say it was only like two or three years ago where we, I mean, maybe it's been around longer, but where we really saw, because it was used against like the Project Zero bug tracker, as I recall it. As be, that was at least one of the first times I took notice of the attack. Um, I won't pretend to know the entire history, but it's a cool attack. It's something that's going to be very, like, a lot of times it's going to require a lot of targeting. And that's true in this case, too. I do think Slack should try and fix this, but it's kind of a hard thing. Like, these sorts of side channels, I could understand not really wanting to pay out a ton on them either. Because, like, one, it there isn't really clear, like, how do you prevent every sort of side channel? Like, people are going to continue to be creative and come up with different ways here to abuse this sort of thing. I think the fact that's been pointed out, showing like there's an actual thing, like I don't agree with dismissing it just on the basis of workspace, workspace, therefore they're somewhat trusted. I don't agree on that point, but I do think there's some argument to be made when it comes to this sort of attack and how concerned you need to be about them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't agree with just dismissing the report outright, but I do feel like. There is, like, I think just more discussion needs to be had over how concerned we should be about these, because they are things that are going to be very targeted, and yes, it's information, it's, sens it's potentially sensitive information, but all you're doing here, like, you're finding out if, if a victim visits my website, then I can know and de-anonymize their account, like, that's something useful. It's possible you might be able to do that just with, um, you know, an IP might be enough to do that for some users. For some users, it won't be. Um, obviously, there are plenty of cases where this, you would need more information. But the amount of information you're able to leak is kind of limited here. Yeah, I guess just on a whole, I think it's something to be concerned about. Particular instance, though, like, I just, I don't know the solution here, I guess. So ideally, Slack would have, like, accepted this issue and, and tried to mitigate it, obviously. That said, I think the author is maybe overestimating the impact a little bit there. They're correct in refuting the point about trust in a workspace. But the other thing that Slack argued there was that the impact wasn't high enough to warrant accepting the report. And... Well, yeah, I mean, the impact here is somewhat low, considering the limitations on how this can be used. The author argues that users are defenseless, but the user does have to visit the attacker's site to be able to take advantage of this issue. It's not like it's a zero click. 
Um, if it were some kind of zero click like leak, which I'm not sure how that would work, but in that case, I would I would tend to agree that you know users would be defenseless. This would need to be mitigated. But in the case where a user has to click a malicious link, I mean that's that's kind of a high ask. Uh, and at that point, there's a lot of other potential routes you could go as well. So, you know, nevertheless, the author does state some fixes that could be used in this kind of situation, like retooling how shared resource URLs are generated to require an HMAC or something, although that would be a, a major design change and it, it probably wouldn't be portable with like the way links previously work. So that wouldn't be a good solution from Slack's point of view. Um, the other thing they suggested was using uh, fetch metadata request headers to disseminate between malicious requests, which would indicate a cross site fetch. Uh, Sorry, can you repeat the last request. sentence? Um, I accidentally switched scenes there, and you probably got cut off for everybody. Okay. Um, did just the, the last the HMAC coming through? I'm. Uh, I think it would have been right after you said that. Just repeat the okay. last statement. Yeah. So the other thing they suggested was using fetch metadata request headers to disseminate between malicious requests, which would indicate a cross-site fetch, versus genuine requests, which would have the fetch site as none. So. Yeah, I mean the the fetch metadata request header seems like a a much better solution than the like requiring an HMAC. Um, so yeah, I mean ideally Slack would have went with that route, but I I wouldn't want to criticize Slack too much here for like not accepting the report. Uh, unlike some of the other reports we've covered in the past, where you know it's easy to go after the vendor because it's kind of an egregious like handling of the report. In this case, I mean it's it's kind of a low end impact issue. Although the attack is kind of cool and how it works, it's just not really gaining you that much. And, you know, from Slack's point of view, it's just not worth paying out for. So, yeah. And I mean, like as an attack, it's an awesome attack. I mean, that I think like a lot of the cross site leak attacks are really cool. And they did also just kind of expand knowledge on cross site leaks in general with their, uh, with this content disposition thing. Oh, they kind of talk about this being, as far as they know, a novel, a novel technique for it. So, like, you know, I don't want to hate at all on what they report here. Impact's a little bit limited. I just think, on a whole, like, the entire community needs to have more of a discussion over the value of these sorts of cross-site links. Like, this is definitely a vulnerability. I don't deny that. Um, and I don't really deny that there could be impact. I'm not sure, though, at how we should measure impact. Like, what should be the requirement before a cross-site leak is actually considered uh, useful? Like, would it be useful to know on every website if somebody's just logged into a Slack account versus a specific account in this case? Um, I think they raised the bar even more. Like, in some cases, yeah, that might be useful Knowledge, especially if it's a sensitive website, um, you know, like a gay dating app or something. If you know somebody's logged in there, that can expose sensitive information. But is it as useful on, like, say, Facebook, knowing just they're logged into a Facebook account? Well, that doesn't tell you anything. Um, this one, being the specific account, definitely has more impact than both of those. I'm just using them as an example case of... How do we measure the damage of a cross-site leak? Like, and how do we be objective about it? The main thing you're like point you're trying to get across there is that there's just no clear line. And part of the reason for that is, like you were saying, it's 
it's kind of dependent on the scenario. Um, it's it's going to vary on a site by site or service by service basis. So it's hard to come up with like a generalized rule or line to state like this is an issue versus this is somewhat not important. It's hard it's, to come up with. And I just don't think the discussion's really been had yet. Um, like in any case. Yeah. So like you said, the, the attack is cool. I just really like side channel type attacks in general. I think it's a really cool attack class. So, um, you know, that's that's why we covered it. And it's one of the more creative attack classes, too, because it really is just like a creative way. Can you come to leak more information? Or sometimes it ends up with some, let's say, less than feasible scenarios. Like uh, uh, we covered a paper a while back about leaking through monitor brightness. Like leaking a bit of data through monitor brightness. Um, and like, I remember you know, at one point. An air gap machine having a camera on it seems a little bit little bit stupid, but you know, it's still somebody ha- had the creative thought. Yeah, I remember at one point uh we were covering papers like every week on like different unique side channels when it came to hardware. Like that that was a that was a fun a funny time when we were just looking at all these research papers and we're 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 doing a lot of stuff with like covering a lot of papers with classifiers and stuff too so that was just kind of the area we were looking for topics in but um yeah i I remember that one with the monitor brightness that one was cool but yeah carrying on with cool attacks we have a topic from go secure which is a very unusual bug in mysql that allowed bypassing of aws web app web app firewalls for exploiting sql injections and the bug is based on scientific notation, which I must say that's probably the first time I've ever seen scientific notation being brought up in the context of a vulnerability before. Uh, very interesting feature. Really, um, it's actually a really abusable feature in uh, like scripting languages. PHP has had a ton of issues, actually. Um, really old, but I used to play this browser-based game. Um, one of those like you know you do various events in the browser and you can earn money and send money between players well there was a bug where you'd enter the money amount in um what using this e notation in php and it would get extrapolated out to the larger value but it would depend on how you converted it from the string to an integer so the in the banking code you could do that and you can send more money but only have it take that first number uh so like the one point whatever uh, it would take that from your account and then it would send like a million dollars to somebody else. Uh, th- there are That's a lot of awesome. weird ways to take advantage of that e notation because it is a lot of times unexpected when it's an integer input, they'll convert to an integer in scripting languages such as PHP will expand that. So yeah, I've definitely seen it. It's been a while since I've seen something with it just because it does rely on that particular setup. I guess um, definitely something so, to test for. So part anyway. of the reason I probably haven't seen it before is probably just because I'm, you know, relatively new to the field. Like I haven't really been doing much with scripting languages or vuln hunting before like 10 years ago, for example, and might that might even be like stretching it a bit. So, yeah, this seems like one of those issues where it could have been a lot more prevalent in like the earlier days when you know, it, it was like a newer feature to PHP and it was people were looking at it. Um, but 
you know, in the like last few years when I've been doing security research and stuff, I haven't seen it. So, you know, it's cool to me. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's um, <laughs> art of it is just moving like different languages. PHP was insanely popular for quite a while. It's still quite popular, but, you know, you're seeing other languages that aren't quite as flexible with the numbers. So the bug here is with scientific notation, if it's expressed incorrectly in an SQL query, such as by using like the E without a number following it, the value attached to it will be stripped out entirely of the SQL um, of the query. So the example they give is a select query where the field name was one dot E dot tables that would be replaced with just dot tables. So that allowed this problem where SQL could execute queries differently than what the web app firewall was seeing and expecting. So there was kind of a desync there with how the invalid uh, scientific notation cases were handled. So the web app firewall would just let them through, whereas SQL would end up changing the queries upon finding the invalid syntax. Um, so pretty straightforward issue there. The reason they pin this issue specifically on MySQL is saying that, you know, if if a query has invalid scientific notation, it's the query should just be rejected outright. Um, yeah, they shouldn't try to do this like automated fixing of it. It's surprising that they run this outside of just like string processing or, you know, when they enter some that should be an integer. Because were they able, because they could basically put this number E like dot and then no value after. And if you're not familiar with this notation, it's like um, if you would do like 1.5 E or yeah, one, let's go 1.5 E 5. Um, that would multiply by 10 to the power of 5. So like that old scientific notation, if you're not familiar with this E notation. So by not having any value afterwards, um, it's treated as, you know, 10 to the, like, nothing. It doesn't have an answer. Therefore, just there's no answer. It's not 10 to the 0, which would end up being 1, which is actually a little bit surprising that it doesn't default to just treating it as 0. But uh, I think the more surprising thing is that this runs across the entire query. Um, rather than just where it's expecting a number. Um, because of that, you can basically inject it and have it get stripped out everywhere. Um, it's a cool little bug, though. A little bit surprising. And def I would definitely put it on uh, MySQL as the problem here, rather than... I mean, web application firewall shouldn't be relied upon as like your only security for SQL injection anyhow. But I think not knowing that this would happen is pretty sane on the web app firewall developers. Yeah, it's There's, hard to blame them for this one. Yeah, it's really hard to write like a web app firewall. Like you've got to consider so many cases. There's so many things that can go wrong. Yeah. So like you said, again, this is one of those cool bugs where it's not a super high impact issue because it kind of requires that you know, there is a SQL injection to take advantage of in the first place. And this is mostly getting around the web app firewall, which is kind of like a last line of defense. It's not something you should be relying on. You should have things in front of that also. But, you know, just a cool bug. So, yeah, one of the cover. So moving to our last topic of the day, which is an IDOR in Reddit, in their Reddit coin purchasing system, uh, reported by YanoHD. Uh, the purchasing system here is used for it's it's what's used for giving like platinum or gold or silver to other Reddit users. 
I've never really done that because I don't really care about Reddit that much, but I know it is a pretty popular feature there. So, uh, Z, I'll let you take this one away. Yeah, they call, or we have this one as an idler to pay less. I'm not sure if that's quite an accurate description of it. So the actual bug, or let's say the reproduction steps, are if you create a transaction, uh, in their example here, to buy like the smallest package uh, for you know $1.99 and 500 coins. Uh, to do that, you make a post request, and then you capture the order ID that comes back from that. And then cancel that order and make a new transaction for a larger package. For example, $3.99 for $1,100 coins. And that same post request, you let it go through, but then in the response, you change the order ID to the old order ID. And then when you carry on with that transaction, it's going to have that old order price, the $199 when you go to PayPal. But when that transaction finishes, it's going to give you the new order's amount of coins, the 1,100 coins. So you're basically buying 1,100 coins for the price of 500 coins. So... I don't know, like, they don't really root cause it here to explain exactly what's happening, and that's fair. They explain how to reproduce it. That's kind of the important information when reporting a bug. But it is a little bit of a weird case to have here, because you would kind of expect this order ID to be consistent. The only thing I can kind of maybe guess at is that at some point later in the transaction, it's then sending this ID again, so it gets it back and then reuses it. And at one point, it's reading out, like, the session, what's the current active transaction. At another point, it's actually doing the lookup on it. And that's where you get that desync between the two values. But it is a really interesting scenario that I can't really come up with a good reason for why this happened. Um, like, when we were just talking about the MySQL one, like, I could imagine kind of the type of logic that went into it. This one, I can't really imagine what the logic was that caused this. Um, and I'm not sure it's an IDOR because you're not really making any uh, direct requests in there. Uh, you're changing out an ID, so something's happening, but I'm not sure I agree with calling it IDOR. I don't know what I'd really call it, though, partially because I don't understand where the root of this vulnerability was. Still a great attack, though, especially changing the information coming back, having it reuse that value. Um, it's just really interesting that you end up with an order that has half the right value and half the wrong value, e.g. the right um, the right uh, amount of coins but the wrong dollar amount. I don't know, it, it's just a weird a weird place for it to get mixed up on that I don't have a good guess as to what happened here but a great bug and they did get a $500 bounty for it. You would think the cost would be more tightly attached to the, the coin amount there. Um, the other thing that I found was a little bit weird was the fact that you could even use a canceled order ID at all. <clears throat> you would think that when the order ID gets canceled, you, you couldn't just like it wouldn't be usable again, because why would it be? But yeah, I mean, there's definitely some weird like stuff going on on the back end to allow this attack. It's it's strange. But, you know, from the researcher's point of view, it's just something that they tried and they found out that it worked. So, you know, it's a good report from them um, without being able to, you know, look into the back end and see how things are working. It's it's hard to comment on, you know, what's going on there. And Reddit didn't really go.
go into detail there either because you know obviously they don't have to um, yeah like to some extent i could imagine a scenario with the whole canceled id thing just because um i'm assuming that id is actually sent over to paypal also like it's included as part of that request so if you end up making that pay so they've already created kind of the transaction with paypal it might take some time for the transaction to be canceled over on like the paypal side for them to know like oh this transaction isn't actually okay so PayPal's like whatever they just created it. We'll let that, we'll let this go through, and it sends back its little or payment notification saying, "Yep, yeah, you got a payment here of whatever." And then on the Reddit side, they're seeing we got a transaction, so it's assumed to be okay, and just reading out values from it. Although problem there is it's clearly not reading out the right values from because it's getting the coin amount from the other one. So that's probably not what's happening here, but. I could at least imagine the scenario. And it's it's a really interesting bug, though, exactly because of this, because I can't figure out how this actually happened. Unfortunately, and unfortunately, we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, yep. there isn't a lot beyond just like, yep, the report works or or the fix works or doesn't work. The speculating is fun, though. Yeah. But yeah, with that said, that's all of our topics for today. Thanks to everyone who tuned in. You can catch the VOD on Twitch or on YouTube at 6 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Uh, we also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. Uh, feel free to join our Discord. I'll drop a link in chat for that. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter whenever we're going live. Um, and just announcements for these streams in general will be posted there. We'll be back tomorrow for the binary episode at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And we'll see you all then.